Hope everybody's doing well. You survived the ice snow apocalypse. Branches are picked up. Cars are repaired. People are up and walking around again. One more week and here we are. You know, the world is kind of an interesting, if not scary, place sometimes, isn't it? Whenever you think about just the things that happen that seem to just come out of nowhere. And I, I definitely didn't anticipate people losing power like they did. I didn't anticipate uh, having to slalom my way to work on Thursday, and maybe you had to do the same. And then you here on a larger scale, you have wildfires in California that are... Um, the most devastating in the history of that state with 700 people that are, are missing and the heat so intense that some of them they suspect will never be accounted for. And you look at all of those things again, just another snapshot of a day in a life in uh, the year 2019, that's sad, 20, 2018, and you think, wow, there's some pretty powerful forces at work in the world, aren't there? And some people would say it's just one of those moments where, you know, we just have bad things happening. And other people would say it's one of those moments where it seems like evil is coming to the surface a little bit, a little bit more. And everything in between, and certainly there's a lot of confusion regarding what is happening. And at the end of the day, uh, only the Lord knows. But for most of us, we get up and we face our own little challenges and sometimes they become larger like power outages. Sometimes for some people, maybe even in our church, uh, we have uh, friends or relatives in Northern California and we're wondering, are, are they going are, are to show up? I mean, my dad, my dad grew up right down the road in Gridley, California, right down uh, from... Um, uh, where the wildfires were and I don't know if I have family impacted by that or not. And so they're just different layers of things that happen in our lives and, and they seem to be more intense than ever. And I think what it does is it causes us to ask some pretty deep questions. Like where is God at in all of this? And, and what does it mean? And what can I do? And for people who follow God in the way that we do, uh, we know the Bible gives us a lot of clarity on what it is that we see happening and how evil does have forces behind it that um, work against God's kingdom and against humanity. There are other people who say, I need to get involved in things more occult-like, like tarot cards and witchcraft and even you know occultic practices and rituals in order to discover uh, some power in my life or some ability to overcome. And I would say that those things are increasing as time goes on. I don't know if we're in the last days or not, but I think as we read the scripture that we're going to be looking at today, it'll at least help us to stay grounded in the things that we need to stay grounded in, regardless of what's happening out there in here or even in here. There, there are definitely answers. And um, we're going through the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 4. And it's a, it's, it's a little heavy on theology. If you're not familiar with that word. It just means some, some of, the, some of the, the, the little bit deeper things of what the Bible is all about. But not so deep we can't understand it. 
And it has to do with really people coming, to, trying to come to God from two different places. Now maybe as a person who is in this church, you grew up in the church and you had a lot of ideas about what it meant to go to church. But somewhere along the way, it either became uninteresting or somebody shut the door on you and said, you can't stay here if you carry on like that. And then there are other people who just come from a completely non-Christian background and they're saying, how can I find my way to God because I want to know more about Him? And they've practiced or dabbled in a lot of different things trying to find their way and someone comes along and says, Jesus is the way and you're intrigued and you follow that path and sure enough, Everything you're hearing is resonating with everything that you need. And it becomes very clear that what Jesus did is powerful enough that it can meet my own deepest needs. And that's what we want to present to you. But I want to back up a little bit to uh, a time 2,000 years ago where people were just like us asking who is God and how do I get to him. And some of them are coming from a so-called religious background and others are coming from kind of a pagan background where they're just trying to piece it together. And as um, we gather in this room, I know you're probably from one or the other places. And the Apostle Paul is looking at this church that he played a pivotal role in creating. I mean, he was so stoked about their response that both Jew and Gentile alike, pagan and, and, and religious person, were saying, we've been practicing this path of trying to get to God, but there have been missing pieces that we haven't been able to put our finger on until you mentioned it. And what those missing pieces are aren't ideas that help the story to be complete, but rather it's completely different. Those missing pieces are actually a person who in every way answers the question in a way that we never thought could be answered. And they were stoked. Because like so many things, you're just finding your way through life and then all of a sudden, someone or something shows up and it changes everything. And maybe you've had that experience. I was telling my daughter whenever she went to college, I said, you know, for four years you're going to be learning a skill. You're going to learn how to be an engineer. And I think that's wonderful. But after, at the end of your time at college, it's really going to become a different question. Not so much what you know anymore, but who you know. Because without the who you know, the what you know won't go anywhere. And my biggest worry was that she would get this degree and then she would come back and say, can I move back into the basement? And I realized that maybe I was just lacking a little bit of faith in the possibility that that, that who you know person would show up. And sure enough, he did. And he invited her to work for her. And she's very happy in that workplace. And it wasn't so much that being an engineer got her there because if she wasn't an engineer, she wouldn't have understood how to live in that environment. And once she got the job, she was able to use all those skills, but it was all based on who you know. 
And what the Apostle Paul is seeing is the unraveling of a church because someone showed up or some people showed up and said, yeah, sure, it is important to know Jesus, but there are a number of rituals and activities that you need to participate in in order to do it the right way. And Paul was like, oh man, this is, this is just taking it backwards. We had moved so far and now they're putting up all of these tests for whether or not you're doing it the right way. You know, we had a, a funeral here yesterday and it was for a, a gal who was 92 years old. And what's interesting is when you go way back on the timeline of her story and you see a critical moment happening in her life and then you see all the people that are here because she's here and she made a difference. At a particular moment in the timeline, she went to a church with her mother because her father had divorced her mother and as a person... 80 years ago, going to church as a little girl with a single mom, guess what churches said when they showed up? We accept a lot of people here, but we don't, we don't take your kind. A line has been crossed, and you really don't have a place here. They didn't just come out and say that, but it was more or less... We're glad that you're here. Oh, you're divorced. And then all of a sudden, the body language said it all. And then she went to First Christian Church on 2nd Street. And for some reason, they didn't get the memo. that There's a test. And her and her mom and mom's kids showed up. And they said, we're just seeking a place where we can worship God. Can we worship God here? And they're like, Sure, tell us about yourself. And they told them about themselves. And the church people didn't even bat an eye. Because for some reason, thank goodness, there was a culture in place here where people said, the most important thing is it's about who you know. And as I think about that lady's story, her name was Dorothy Hinchcliffe. I know that there are people in the room who have been affected by her life. Had she not been given entry into this place, I honestly think it would be different. Profoundly different. Because there were probably a few more like her who gravitated to this church and then all of a sudden they became sympathetic to people who didn't have perfect lives. Whose lives were messy like our lives. And the good news for persons like that and for us is that the way the Bible spells it out that's the way it's supposed to be. So you can imagine the Apostle Paul whenever he's creating these churches and they're getting all excited about this Jesus who in every way fills in the gaps but changes the whole picture because it's not about religious practices but it's more about who you know and then all of a sudden there are measures put in place that say, yeah, but. And as Paul is looking at that, his heart is just breaking. His stomach is nauseous. 
And he's terribly upset. Because whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're kind of reverting back to some old ways to try to make sense of how it is that you walk with Jesus. I want to show you real quickly a, a video of something called a Rube Goldberg machine. Do you know what that is? If you don't, you're going to know. So let's go ahead and play it, and I'll tell you why I did. friends is how you find the deep answers to life <laughs> and, and it's kind of a little bit of a parody of the things that are going on in the passage of scripture I'm getting ready to read but because it's a little bit complex theologically I, I wanted you to kind of hear some of these stories so that when we read it you'd know kind of how to look at it now, interestingly enough have you ever tried to build a Rube Goldberg machine anybody just even just a couple of things that are cause and effect well, I'll tell you, the girl that did that, um, she had a few things to say about it. And guess what? One of the things that she didn't say was, I got it right the first time. I got it right the first ten times. Basically, she said, it took me several attempts in order to pull that off. And the other feature that maybe you noticed or didn't notice was how it started out. There was a little sign. Do you remember the sign? What did it say? Not wearing your glasses. Well, um, it said, uh, you know, to your fortune. And then the end effect of that chain of events that had to be perfectly aligned was that she was able to discover from the confines of that fortune cookie the important piece of information that basically said, you're always learning stuff. Well, you're like, yeah, I could have put that together myself. I didn't need to go through that whole ritual to get there. But that, in essence, is what Paul is dealing with as far as the mindset of the people. And without saying any more, hopefully you're with me so far, I want to read the passage of Scripture because it's talking about helping people to see what they need to see or rather who they need to see. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 4. My point is this, heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property, but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and just insert um, Rube Goldberg machinery of a religious life? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? Again, Rube Goldberg, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. Friends, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. When I was a kid growing up, there was uh, a section of the newspaper that I was primarily interested to the exclusion of everything else. You know what it was? The comics. But right next to the comics, they had your horoscope. And I would read the horoscope, and I, by their definition, was a Sagittarius. And so I'm thinking, what does it have to say about my life today? And I'd read it, and I'm like, oh, wow, that... That, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm just a kid and I'm trying to figure that, these things out and I, and I realize there must be somebody who's able to look at the stars and decipher from them certain messages that will have bearing on when I was born on the calendar. What I didn't realize when I got older was it was just generic enough that it could have been anybody at any time. But somewhere along the way, a lot of people said, if you want to know the things that are going on out there and you want to get perspective, then go no farther than, than the Zodiac. And there were people in Paul's day who said, I swear by the Zodiac. It is the place where I go to find out how my life is going to play out. Almost in a deterministic way. Like if I follow this and I do that and I, and I align with this, then it's all, then, I, then I'm going to find the answer to my fortune. And people today in this moment of crisis are looking to places like that and they're saying, what does that have to say about my life, about the future of, uh, of, of my family or, or our country or our world? And as Paul is trying to bring this back into, into, into the right place, he realizes that there are a number of people who have Rube Goldbergized their religion. They have found different things that they needed to practice in just the right way in order to get the right outcome from God. And maybe you've done that. And maybe you thought, you know, if I just go to church or if I just read my Bible or if I just pray, then it's sort of a mechanical, if I do this, then I will get that. And if I do this, and, I, and I'll get that. And to some degree, it kind of works. But for the most part, it's not really that effective. And Paul is saying, this is the problem. You are trying to take a whole bunch of little rituals and you're trying to form them into something that will meaningfully bring you to the feet of God. And it, it doesn't work that way. 
And then what Paul does is he looks at the churchgoers and he said, you've been obeying the law all of these years and it has definitely played a positive role in your life, believe it or not. But it's not the end all and be all. Because in the mind of religious people who were coming to church and hearing the gospel and believing in Jesus, they were also thinking that you had to have sort of a Rube Goldberg process of our own rituals, circumcision, and holy days, and things that were part of the background of Jewish culture. And they said, you got to do those things if you're going to connect with God. And in reality, it's just no different than um, a, a divorcee walking into church with her daughter and saying, I'd love to come here and worship with you, can I? And the church responding by saying, Yes, you can, but you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. Then, then, hopefully, God will show grace, and you will, you'll make it. And Paul just sees how ridiculous this whole way of thinking has become, and tends to become in our lives when we revert back to these kind of rituals. Now, imagine you're a Jewish person, and you have been given a unique story based on an event that happened a long time ago. It goes farther than this event, but I'm just going to start there. It was when a whole bunch of people were genetically all basically the same, and they were called the Israelites. They were in Egypt, and they were in their own portion of Egypt, their own clan, kind of like the Amish or the Mennonites. And they were continually being exploited for their labor and for um, the things that the overlords wanted to kind of extract out of them. And God saw them in their slavery and he said, I'm going to deliver you from that. I'm going to call you to be my own chosen people and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to help to define a new relationship between myself and humanity as it, is, that is, as it is carried out in my relationship over time with you. So if you're still with me, essentially what God did was he said, I'm going to give you things to help you kind of find your way back to who I am. I'm going to give you some instructions on how it is that you can begin to, we can begin to be on the same page. And so while Moses was called to lead these people out of Egypt and through signs and wonders of the crossing of the Red Sea, they land on this uh, basically uh, a, 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 an outpost that is preparing to go into the promised land. And God says, before you go, you need to kind of understand the rules of the game. And he gave the Ten Commandments and the other laws, but it wasn't so that by those laws they could become perfect before God. It was so that in their ignorance they could kind of understand what was going on as far as how things had broken down and what was good and what was bad. Out of their background, for far as they were concerned, child sacrifice was kind of a thing. As um, far as they were concerned, if you had a kid that wasn't matured into adulthood, then the possibility loomed that that wasn't a human being until they proved that they could add value to society. And as far as they were concerned, these things were normal. They didn't know any different. And as far as they were concerned, the God of Moses is the same God as Baal, who does require child sacrifices in order to be persuaded to show favor, which people commonly did. 
And so when Moses comes down from the mountain after being up there for 40 days, he sees all of a sudden a golden calf, which is an idol that represents everything that Baal stands for. And that idol really is a means by which they thought they were connecting with the same God. And God's saying, no, I'm giving you a new language and a new vocabulary so that you can understand that this is a different way. And so he offered to them things that had to do with life, you know, not murdering people, good relationships and how those worked and honoring him above all and loving other people and things that make a lot of sense to us but were in some ways pretty new to them. And then God goes on to say, I'm going to develop your understanding a little bit farther by showing you some things that will emerge over time they won't make a lot of sense right now, but they will make sense eventually. And one of them is we're going to build a tabernacle, and I'm going to be in that tabernacle, and it's going to be a place where you can go and find me represented. And that tabernacle is going to become a temple, and then in the temple is going to be in the center my glorious presence. And you can come to that temple, and we can find common ground to relate to each other on. And along the way, I'm not only going to give you a prophet like Moses, but I'm going to also give you a king like David who will reign on a throne forever. And so, you know, they're checking boxes and they're seeing how this thing is unfolding and they realize that God does have sort of a different way, but they keep wanting to... to it's like, it's like if you ever go to the, to the shopping center and you, and, you, and you get that shopping cart that just keeps going like that, it just kept wanting to go in that direction. And God's saying, no, we've got to stay on this path right here. And so he offers them a prophet and a priest and a king as an image for them to lock their mind in that is centered on the God who is in the temple. And he said, that's not where we're ending, but that is where we're starting so that you can kind of see where I'm going. Because where I'm going, it, it, it is kind of like the fortune cookie, only it's not pagan in that way. Where I'm going, it's going to take time and it's going to take people and it's going to take experiences. But when that moment comes... And I reveal to you the answer, you'll be ready to understand it. And so he gives prophets and priests and kings. He gives the law. He gives a temple. He gives a sacrificial lamb. He gives a, a wise teacher. He provides uh, instruction through teachings and prophetic words for the moment. He gives uh, even... Um, Signs and wonders to show how he can defy the laws of physics. And then he does this. He says, it's all, all those pieces are going to come together in a powerful way. And when, it, when, when that happens, you'll already kind of know the story well enough that you will see it. But the surprise is that it's not an it. It's not a thing. It's not some great teaching. It is a person. Jesus. And so Paul is going... So fast forward to Paul's moment. And he sees how all of those experiences and teachings and definitions and rituals and things are pointing to the one... Who when he came, guess who on the Sermon on the Mount gave a new law? Guess who became a prophet like Moses? 
Guess who, in many ways, was a priest by having a conversation between God and people who are disconnected from God and being the one who would stand in the middle of that conversation. Guess who would eventually become king, but not only king, king of kings and lord of lords. Guess who would do signs and wonders? Guess who would speak as one having authority? Guess who would offer a new exodus? Only it wasn't just a physical removal from the bondage of an Egyptian captivity, but rather it is a disarming of all the powers and the principalities that were keeping your soul held back. And when people who were schooled in that storyline saw Jesus, they're like, that's it. That's what we've been missing. But you know the irony in this whole story? Is the religious teachers had got so busy doing church that they just started rewriting the story over this way. And they were assembling their own Rube Goldberg machine of what you could and couldn't do. So much so that when Jesus showed up, people were like, we don't do religious stuff anymore. Yeah, we believe in God, but I'll tell you what, only those Pharisees and only those Sadducees and the scribes and teachers, they're the only ones who can successfully create the Rube Goldberg machine. We gave up trying a long time ago. The God that you're talking about is completely and totally inaccessible because they've just made it too difficult to come into his presence. Paul saw all of that stuff unfolding. And he was so caught up in this alternate story that he didn't even see it at the time. But when God opened his eyes and he saw it for the first time, it was like, oh my goodness. It's not about a teaching it's about something more profound than that. It is about God becoming one of us and putting his very face on a man named Jesus. And then that man named Jesus embodying everything that they had been taught up to that moment so that they could basically understand what was going on. And Paul's like, man, I'm stoked about this. And there was a song that was in his head. You ever have a song in your head and you can't get rid of it? But there's a part of you saying, I don't want to get rid of it because I like this song. It's kind of energizing me. It's sort of keeping, helping me keep my pace and keep my tempo going. And it's playing in his song, playing in his head. And it's recorded in Philippians chapter 2. And I don't know how it was put to music, but it basically said, um, and, 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 and he... He, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather humbling himself in the form of a man, he became one of us. And in the process, he even went to the place where, like all of us, he died. And then when he came back to life, God exalted him to the highest throne where he is king of kings and lord of lords. And in this man who was really God was the answer. Because everything leading up to him was just schooling. It was just like you're learning. You're learning about what you need to know. 
kind of like my daughter being an engineer. But there comes a point where what's critical isn't so much what you know, but who you know. And we've arrived at that place. But I think a lot of people were saying, once they kind of got a little comfortable with it, I'm not sure. That's kind of scary. It, it's a little overwhelming to be free. You guys remember that movie called Free Willy? Long time ago. You remember the, the killer whale's name? Anybody? So you weren't that into it. Okay. Um, well, I vaguely remember it, uh, but I looked it up and his name was Kiko. So there you go. But why was that even a thing? Why were people concerned about freeing some ocean animals that were in an aquarium? Because in their mind, they thought this is exploitation and they need to be set free. All of us need to be set free. So while all that was stirring up pretty strongly, there was a group of activists who got together one evening and they found that there was one of the whales was in a containment thing, aquarium, I guess, close to the ocean and it wasn't really too big of a stretch to be able to um, uh, lead that whale from its confines into the ocean. And so one evening they planned their work, they worked their plan and that whale was free. And off it went for about a quarter of a mile. And then it stopped. And it's like taking it all in. And it is so overwhelmed by everything that is out there that is so unknown. Do you know what happened? Turned around and came back. And people are like, what the heck? What's wrong with you? You're free. But it's a pattern that goes all the way back to Egypt. Because those guys who were set free started to say, it's too scary being set free. Send us back to something that's familiar, like Egypt, at least we had food. Notwithstanding the fact that God provided day after day after day in the desert of all places, which is non-productive. Because he's showing them something different that is so radically different that their hunger to be set free was not as strong as their desire to learn a new way of life. And I think a lot of people come into church and they do find that Christ sets them free. As Paul writes so later, if you, are, if you are free in Christ, you are truly free indeed. But then they're like, I'm not sure what to do with that. So I got to make up some rules or something. And I, I, I do kind of get it. And for people in the church who were steeped in that religious tradition, they were starting to say, if you really want to go, if you really want to know God, you got to go back to these rules and regulations. That was a safe place for them. And what Paul's doing is he's like, you don't understand. The whole point of that was to help you to see what you needed to see. Because until you are schooled in that tradition, you won't appreciate just how much Jesus is a prophet or a priest or a king. So it's clearly helpful 
But it's not going to save you. At the end of the day, it's just information. And Paul said, what saves you is a person who has defeated the forces of evil. Did you catch that? Because the reality was, there were, he used the word elemental spirits. Which is an interesting phrase um, in that, and I'll just, I'll just say this. There was a widespread belief that there were powers that are unseen that were controlling different regions of the world, different cultures and things like that. And it's described in scripture and Daniel talks about it. And these controlling spirits basically would say, Rome is my domain. The, the, um, the Babylonians, that's my domain. The Assyrians, that's my domain. And Paul says, they're not gods, but they're definitely created beings that have run off the reservation and are in control and leading people into not only slavery, but detestable acts of dehumanization. And Paul said, you can't go back to that stuff. That is the very thing that Jesus came to disarm. And those are forces that are at work in the world, whether you have a category for them or not, or whether you believe it or not, that are still at work in the world. And there are even people today that worship ancient deities like that, like Moloch and Baal. And we say, well, Paul said those are not gods. Technically, they're not gods in the sense that Jesus is God. But they are powerful created beings who have capacities beyond us that are restrained. However, if we choose to give them consent in our lives... Trust me, they will walk in and they will give you power, but they will steal your soul. And we can't deny that. That's why what Jesus did was so, so, so much greater than anything else. And I, I can't underscore it enough. And what Paul basically said was those elemental spirits that the other people are sort of captive by... Well, you're taking the law and kind of making it into one of those as well. And it's just a distortion of the whole process. So hopefully I'm not going too down the rabbit hole with you guys on this. Because I got to be honest with you. I think there is evil at work in the world. I think there's some dark, sinister forces at work in the world. And I think that it's hard for us to discern how and where and when they show up. Except for one thing that wasn't just a great teaching to be revealed at the end of the fortune cookie, but it was a statement by the teacher. You'll know them by their fruit. Don't listen to what they say, just pay attention to what you see happening. And when you do, you'll know what kind of spirits at work in this thing. My advice to you, stay away from it. Because it's dark. I honestly think some of that stuff is churning back to the surface. And I'll tell you why. And I'm going to end this message, so uh, just bear with me a second. I believe this because if you look around at this church, in 1969 this building was full. 
but it has been trending like this nationally the whole time. Our culture is definitely moving away from the church. But like anything, when you take the religious component out of it, something else has got to fill that void because we are by nature designed to worship. We can't help ourselves. Something is going to be the object of our fixation. And I just want to be one of those voices saying, don't make that a something. Make that a someone. Jesus. It is probably a critical time for us to be the church. And to keep him front and center. And to live a life where the overlapping circles between his and ours are increasingly consistent. Because when evil comes up and it rears its head, it's looking for every opportunity to exploit you. And the last thing I want to do is be a church that says, oh, evil's exploiting you? Well, when you go and you fix that on your own, you can come back. I want to say, when you come in here, we want to help you. Because we don't want you to be taken down by its deceitful power. We want you to know the one who loves you and knows you more than words can express. Who in his own very long, somewhat convoluted way, but very intentional way, brought Jesus to our doorstep and said, he's the one. And so when Paul is looking at people going backwards... He's saying, you've made three steps forward and now you're looking to the horoscope again and you're looking to the law again and you're saying, how can I make this fit together? And the bottom line is, it doesn't. And I maybe try to be preemptive here. If evil intensifies, then hopefully we're ready. If it doesn't, then hopefully, you know, we're stable. But regardless, when Paul is looking at all of this stuff in the landscape that he's called to bring the gospel into, he knows it's not neutral territory. And the bottom line is, your life isn't neutral territory either. Because the one who is in control of this world that Jesus defeated on the cross is still at work. And he doesn't like you. And he will do anything that he can to trick you, seduce you, lure you, lie to you, cause you to move in a direction other than toward Jesus. And I hope that in all the things that I've said, if that's been going on, together we can play a role in moving you back. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for giving us your son, who in every way changes everything about our life here on earth. We thank you that as you show us in your word patterns that describe your character, your heart, that find their yes in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is not an idea, but a person who is invisible, but clearly in this room through your spirit. And we pray, Father, that you help us to stop missing the mark if we're directing our attentional gaze towards things that lead us away from you. 
and that we can reorient our gaze back to things that add value to who we are as human beings. And we know that begins with Jesus. And so help us, Father, together to orient our lives in such a way that Jesus is preeminent. And Lord, thank you that your kindness and your patience and your grace helps us to know your embrace for our lives through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we're getting ready to meet at a table, Lord, that is representative of just how much you love everyone in this room. But it is also a table that creates boundaries, covenantal boundaries, that protect us from things on the outside and give us stability and a right relationship with each other and with you for things on the inside. So as we get ready to receive the loaf and the cup, Lord, I pray, Father, that you just help everyone who takes it to remember what you did so that we could become your people, adopted into your family, have that new identity as your child, to know the worth that you've ascribed to us based on what you sacrificed and paid for us. And to sense a purpose in all of this as we see people locked down in captivity, many times content, not knowing what's out there. And I pray that we could be representatives to them of something better and something that they shouldn't be afraid of. And so help us, Father, in our mission to reflect with fidelity the person of Christ in our lives. May the blood of Christ that is represented through the loaf and the cup cleanse us where we need your grace and forgiveness from shame and guilt and things that accumulate in any given week and any given life. And thank you, Father, for always accepting us like Dorothy and her family. And I just pray this for everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen.